welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Hi, everyone. My name is Elise. I do that dad joke every time. Debbie still laughs. And it, <laughs> it, yeah, that's it. That's the thing. It still makes me chuckle. So Just remember, it's... in the end, this is just friends sitting around making each other laugh sometimes. <laughs> um, yes, my name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I do not work in clinical research. I do work in public health. And I like to listen to Debbie tell me about things. So here we are. Oh, that's so nice, Elise. Um, hey, everyone, it's Elise just here to let you know we've got a website you can check out. It's intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. And that is where you can find transcripts. We're still working on getting the backlog transcribed, but soon we hope to be caught up. So check it out and read along if you like. And we will talk to you later. We're here to pull the curtain back on medical research, so uh, we're going to give you some information. We're hopefully going to explain some things that maybe have been buzzing around in your head. Uh, there is a lot that we could discuss, um, so we're going to take it a bit at a time. And today we're talking about research study design, right? So how does somebody who wants to run a medical research study come up with how it's going to look? What are the steps in it? How, how does all of that work? That's our topic for today. So let's go. Clinical trials are designed to answer a question, which in big terms is the scientific hypothesis, right? I think that my drug is better than the existing drug. I think this thing that I have will cure cancer or whatever. Does this medicine work to treat a disease? Is this device safe to be used in humans? Are there interactions between this drug and that drug? So that's the purpose of the study, whatever our study is, is we are answering a question. In order to be able to trust the results of the study, the outcomes, we have to be rigorous, we have to be very careful and scientific, and we need to reduce bias. So as human beings, we're all consciously and unconsciously biased about certain things. Like, if I have discovered this drug, naturally I'm going to think that it is going to work. That is a bias, right? Uh, if you support a sports team, naturally you are going to think that any decision that the umpire makes against your sports team is wrong. That's bias. Completely natural, completely understandable, but it's bias nonetheless. We have to, in a scientific research study, reduce, minimise, exclude bias as much as possible so that our personal opinions or wishes aren't affecting the outcomes of a study. Okay, We have to collect evidence, data, in a really transparent and predictable way so that other people can look at what we've done and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I can see why they've done that. I can see how they've done it. That means that the outcome of the study, the conclusion, the answer to the question is believable and trusted by different people rather than just, I think this, therefore this drug should be on the market. That's not how it works. You have to prove it by answering these certain questions. The drug is safe. The drug works, yeah, so etc. Wow. Interruptions. Interruption over here. Interruption. I just, I feel like I'm in a college class right now. I feel like I'm back in school, Debbie. Like we've gotten very like, uh, this is the scientific method. This is data collection, bias reduction. You know, this is now. And then, mm -hmm. and then because of my academic background, like we're going to steer into like, what is knowledge? 
how do we know things? The philosophy yeah, no, ravine. Into the philosophy <laughs> ravine with you. And Andy, epistemology Andy 101 next episode. Um, but I guess, you know, to I just want to kind of uncollege class it a little bit here and ask, like, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Like, of course I want scientists to be unbiased, but, like, is there something in my life that I can connect this to <laughs> besides my college classes? You would like me to tell you why you should care about this scientific yeah, method I mean, nonsense? Yeah, I mean, like, I think... <laughs> yeah, Debbie, why should I care? Well, uh, um, I think <laughs> because, historically speaking, there are quite high stakes if we're not scientific about research, right? Yeah, I, yes. So, <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the best Sounding way of saying like this without... you're accusing me of being... <laughs> Of being no, 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 no. I'm trying. I've never, I've never been accused of being like a college professor, and now I'm, Ooh. I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> and maybe I need to get in the philosophy ravine with Andy, who actually is a college professor, which is wild. Um, yeah. So there's high stakes if we get this wrong, and by that I mean if we accept the fact that human beings are biased, which we are, right, about all kinds of different things. No matter the best of our intentions about wanting to investigate something, if we get that wrong, it can then mean that something is on the market or something is available or something is believed generally that isn't true. And not necessarily like objectively true, what is truth, etc. But here's a good example. You may have uh, been aware in the past number of years about um, people who are anti-vax or worried about mm-hmm. the safety of vaccines. And those are two different things, right? To be concerned about any any medicine, any drug safety is really valid, really fair. But it, w- when you swing too far, and, and, and too far is um, subjective, right? But when when reason departs the conversation, when logic leaves, where, where natural curiosity in question leaves, is when I found a number of people to, 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 to move towards an anti-vax sentiment, which is no matter how safe or effective this thing is proven to mm-hmm. be, I still don't want it. Right. That to me is illogical, but fair enough. And particularly for us in the UK, and I don't know the situation in the US, but there was a, a movement for a while to say that children shouldn't have the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps mm-hmm. and rubella, because it oh, caused yeah. autism. Yep. Still still yeah. a thing in the US. Is that something I, I imagine it's still a thing here, but I don't know any people with kids young enough to get MMR who now believe this. I did. I don't. I don't anymore because um, their kids are older now. So it's it's not something that's on my radar. I imagine that there are still people that believe this. Now, that story hit the headlines because of a particular doctor, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, published a study in The Lancet, which is a big, prestigious medical journal, saying, hey, I've got this evidence that the MMR vaccine causes digestive issues, which causes mm. autism. That was his kind of methodological route, Right. Um, and the study itself, and I'm doing study in inverted commas, the study itself was not robust. It was basically a collection of anecdotes from people who believed that the MMR vaccine had caused their child to have autism. So it wasn't going out into the world and surveying the however many millions of children in that year were vaccinated with an MMR vaccine and saying, right, what's the cases of autism in kids who haven't had the Mm -hmm. vaccine versus kids who have? What's the causation, right? What is the thing that the vaccine is doing in the body to cause the outcome that is autism? Um, It wasn't methodologically robust in any of those ways. 
And so years later, the paper was retracted from the lot. The Lancet said, actually, we're taking this out of our publications because it's not good scientifically. But unfortunately, by that point, this kind of story of how the MMR vaccine caused autism had made its way into the public consciousness and people genuinely believed it, despite the fact that no evidence has ever shown a link Mm -hmm. between the MMR vaccine. Yeah, and, and I just want to, for our listeners, be very clear that in all those hypotheticals that Debbie was talking about and explaining how this came to be, we are saying autism not caused by the MMR vaccine. MMR vaccine, nope. no vaccines cause autism. No data supports that. Nope. No science supports that. Uh, and I believe, if I recall my history around this be- well, uh, Andrew Wakefield also went on public record saying this is not true like the author of that original study i believe even said that oh i don't know i'm pretty sure that's the case but i mean the damage was done right and it is absolutely a thing that people still believe to this day i've just googled did andrew wakefield retract his claims about autism oh contention the intro to clinical research podcast today Small sample size. There were only 12 patients in his study, which God. is nothing. And no control which measures Which are all things we're going to cover today. Uh-huh. And, okay, so it was Andrew Wakefield and 10 co-authors, and 10 of the co-authors went, whoop, uh, nope, we out. But I don't think okay, Wakefield well, ever did. Didn't. Here's the hilarious thing as well that I'd forgotten. Wakefield... His research had been funded by lawyers who'd been engaged by parents in lawsuits against vaccine producing companies. So there's a conflict of interest straight out of the gate. And I'm sure I think it's episodes of the maintenance phase, which is a great podcast presented by Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. And they have, yeah, there's there's two podcasts about RFK Jr. and the anti-vax movement. And in that, I think they talk about Andrew Wakefield and where it's come from. So I would recommend those episodes. I just keep recommending other podcasts hey, on you our know podcast. What? But All boats rise. If it's good, it's good. And Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs are great. And they do some really good work about methodologically looking at why studies aren't robust, which is kind of what we're talking okay. about today, right? So let's try and get ourselves back on track. Did yeah, I answer your um, question? I hope just to, to put a point on it, right, that with proper study design, we control a lot of the things that were not controlled for in the Andrew Wakefield study that allowed mm-hmm. those claims to be made without data supporting mm-hmm. them, which then took off in the public conscience around the idea of vaccines and now continues 20 whatever years later to make it harder to get kids vaccinated against MMR. Really dangerous childhood really diseases. dangerous cha- childhood diseases. And I mean, that's not to mention the stigma and shaming around the idea around autism itself and autism spectrum sure. disorders. I mean, that we're looking that it, for something yeah, to Yeah, that we, oh, we should be so scared of it. I would rather have my di- my kid die of mumps than risk something Correct. that isn't even a possibility because that study was so poorly designed and so much bias was allowed in, in the study yeah. structure, which is why we should care about research study design. I see. So you have, despite some detours along the way, Elise, you've uncollege no, professors. Uh, that's okay. not. I, let's not to be too mean to some college professors. I have a lot of years of both teaching and <laughs> taking classes at the college level, and <laughs> some some professors are great. You know, 
<laughs> okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. I I mean I took it as a compliment, but um I think it yeah, it's good to it's good to think about um why does this matter rather than here's a bunch of definitions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what we're going to talk about today is how how you would design a study if you were going to, because at the end of the day, what we want to do is to allow our data points to be collected in a meaningful way that means we can trust the conclusions and we don't end up like Andrew Wakefield. And there are lots of different things that you need to think about when you're designing a study, but you can pretty much do it by checklist. So that means that you, you go through the, the various points and, and you make sure that you have considered them and covered them. Thinking about writing a protocol in this way, it's going to simplify the process for us today. So we're we're kind of doing this in a beginner's guide to study design and protocol writing. But what we talk about and the steps that we go through is roughly what's done by a team of experts when it comes to writing the protocol. The protocol for a study is the recipe or the roadmap for the study. It tells the regulators and the ethics committee that review it and approve it, the researchers that are going to do the study and anyone else that wants to see how the study was done, right? How it was done. It's step-by-step instructions, just like a recipe, okay? Interestingly, ICHGCP, your favourite International Council on Harmonization Good Clinical Practice. I did that without looking. star. (laughs) Without looking at anything. My eyes were closed. I was looking at my brain. Um, Good job. Yeah, ICHGCP section 6.4 outlines what items should be included or considered as part of study design. So it's so important that GCP says... I have a question, yes. How This is a silly question. How long are these protocols? Are they like hundreds of pages long? Oh, that is that is not a silly question. That is a great question, Elise. Um, yes. How long is a protocol? How long is a piece of string? <laughs> the, the longest protocol I, I ever read was 382 pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elise has just done a black face, um, which I think is completely valid. Yeah, long okay. is the answer. But some of them are not that long. I read one that was like 125 pages. They they are as detailed as they need to be mm-hmm. to explain the study in the detail that is needed. Absolutely. And, and they have to be comprehensive, but also concise. And often like good scientific writing is concise. Mm-hmm. And if they're going on for thousands of pages they're not communicating something i think the reason that the the protocol that i read was so long was because it was um adaptive which meant that it had gone through a number of changes Mm -hmm. over its lifetime and so you kind of had to retain the traceability of all of the changes so that was that was a particularly long one but like a short study that's six weeks long a protocol of 120 pages is is completely achievable the other thing that's that's good if you ever get your hands on a clinical research protocol is a lot of the stuff in it is like tabular or Mm -hmm. as a diagram if i can put something in a table that's that like it's called the the schedule of events so if i've got my patients coming in every week for six weeks for example Mm -hmm. what happens to them each week so they'll have their consent done first and then they might have a baseline physical exam with the doctor, a blood sample. They might have a scan or an x-ray or something. And then at each of the subsequent visits, what happens? They get given their drug. They get taken for some kind of assessment. They have to answer a questionnaire. And setting that out in a table that has the, the days of the visits across the top and the assessments down the side and a little X in each box tells you really clearly what you Makes need to sense. do at each visit. But they'll also probably put it in in words as well, because why not? So in no particular order today, we're going to sort of design a study together. So we're going to start with our hypothesis, our idea. I think my new wonder drug, A, 
is better than a placebo at treating type 2 diabetes, And let's just be, just for the sake of extra clarity, a placebo is a sugar pill or the equivalent of. It's a nothing. Non-active yeah. comparator. Yeah. So I am comparing my drug to something that I know is going to biochemically do nothing in the body. Ah, which is not to say that it does nothing because the placebo True. effect is real. If you believe that the placebo is going to make you feel better because of reasons that we don't entirely understand, but it's true because of, of how the human brain works. If you believe that a placebo is yeah. going to make you feel so, better. But it biochemically, works. it doesn't do anything to alter what's going on in your body. Inactive. Correct. Correct. It's inert. It's it's nothing. So in this situation, I think my new wonder drug A is better than a placebo at treating type 2 diabetes. So we have our drug, wonder drug A. And our indication, the disease or, or symptom or syndrome that we're testing, type 2 diabetes, okay. okay? Those two things may dictate other bits of the study design. So if, for example, my drug needs to be taken daily as a tablet, that is going to dictate how much drug I have mm -hmm. to give to the patients. One tablet per day, for example. Depending on how long the study runs, that means it's going to be X days of drug. It's a relatively kind of simple bit of study design, but that's how it works. If my drug is administered by injection that can only be given by a medical professional or, or, or an infusion that can only be What's given by infusion? a medical professional. Infusion. Ah, okay. So, you know, if you're ever put on a drug like an IV? for fluids. Yep. Okay. I've infusion. never heard that before. An infusion is a way of administering a drug via an IV over a period of time. And depending on the nature of the drug, you will be attached to an infusion pump that pumps the drug into you at a certain rate over the, a period of 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, four okay. hours, whatever it may be. But if I have to be under the supervision of a medical professional when I get my drug, that's going to dictate how often I have to go into the hospital for it. So if it's once a week, once every two weeks, whatever. So that may dictate some practicalities of my study in this example we are comparing as elise highlighted to a placebo which is usually what we're going to do in an early phase of our study right so if we're doing the first in human study or if we're doing research at the beginning of what we know about the drug we're likely to compare to a placebo okay but later on if there is an active comparator available we may want to compare to that so thinking about those two things and what's available and what we should be comparing to may determine whether we're doing active or placebo comparator okay also if we know that we're treating diabetes type 2 diabetes we know that we need patients diagnosed with diabetes type 2 diabetes specifically okay <laughs> we need to go to places to hospitals to clinics to countries to cities whatever that have patients with that disease so that we can treat them but we don't want patients who have very severe or serious type 2 diabetes that requires medical management every single day to stay alive since in our study we're doing placebo control, right? And it's not, it wouldn't be acceptable to an ethics committee. It's not the right way of doing it. If you take patients who are really severely ill and you say, here, have a right. placebo, best of luck. You would do the placebo control bits of your study on patients who can live without yes. being on anything. And if you prove that the drug is safe, then you can test your drug versus an active comparator against patients with a more severe form of the disease. It's a, a progressive and expansive way of doing trials. You'll do one study 
and then you learn something and then you do another study right. to expand your knowledge. You cannot get a drug this approved. This makes one me study think alone. of like when we talked about the phases of clinical research, why you would start with um, testing in patients or people who are otherwise or who are healthy. Um, because yes. then you don't have to worry about taking them off of a medication that is helping them sustain like a quality of life or something like that. You can compare like how it affects their bodies to someone on placebo without worrying about the person going off of a medication that is currently helping them sustain life or quality of life. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. Okay, so we've got our drug, we've got our comparator, we've got our indication. And now we're thinking specifically about the type of people that are going to be on our study. And we've talked already about the severity of their disease, for example. Every study has inclusion-exclusion criteria. So inclusion criteria and separate exclusion criteria that qualifies the patient to be on the study. Now, top of the list, always number one inclusion is the patient has given informed consent. The patient has been informed about how the study is going to work and has chosen mm -hmm. to participate. Okay, that's that's number one. If they don't, if they haven't consented, none of the rest of it matters. Consent should be the first thing that happens. Patients will be excluded from a trial if it's not safe for them to participate. If the drug may cause them harm or jeopardize their disease stability. So, for example, if you're allergic to any of the ingredients in the drug, it's not safe for you to participate especially not in, in the discovery phase of, of what we know about drugs, right? It may be later, we may know actually it's fine and we can change the formulation or something so that it doesn't provoke an allergic reaction, but we want to minimise that risk, particularly early on in development. Every study has a, a raft of these inclusion-exclusion criteria. Some of them are designed to control the patient population so that we can prove our question one way or the other, right? The drug is better. And some of them will be making sure that the patients that do participate so are So are there guidelines determined by someone besides the person writing the protocol about who should be included or excluded? Like, does the um, ICH or someone like a national regulator like the <laughs> FDA or MHRA, mm -hmm. I'm going to say that more confidently one day, um, tell you like, hey, you have to include as many groups as you can. You can't only study white people. You can't only study men? Mm -hmm. Great question. So, yes and no. The expectation is, if you want to sell your drug in a country, you have to prove that it works for the people in that country. The expectation is that if you want to make sure your drug is available to a variety of people that have the disease that you're studying, you've tested it across the range of people that might have the disease. But, until recently, there weren't really any guidelines on that. It was... Like, this is a generally robust scientific ex expectation, but it wasn't really in force. And it still isn't really enforced. It's it's there's guidelines now and the FDA are making it making part of their guidelines legislation. But, w yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. So as a for example, right, the FDA have some guidelines now about racial inclusion in research um, that is becoming legislation. So the expectation is that if you're testing your drug, you have to demonstrate that you are not excluding people on the basis of race, which covers, you know, a, a whole kind of different different world of things that you might be thinking about, such as geographically, where are you placing your studies, right? Because redlining is a thing and, and populations are racially segregated in the USA um, to like, when is your clinic open? You know, because if your clinic's only open during working hours, 
then you're going to only be able to get a certain yeah. kind of person into your study, right? Which may be retired people or people who are privileged enough not to be working or people who are mm-hmm. able to have flexible working, right? Thousands and thousands of, of things like this th- that are kind of practical considerations that may, as a result, lead to exclusion of, of different types of patients from clinical trials. So um, that legislation, that sorry, that guidance that's becoming legislation came out as a result of the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. But that's that's way late, right? And it's it's something that not only do we need to talk about in terms of racial inclusion, but also age, uh, disability, gender. The fact that we saw in the COVID vaccine studies, pregnant mm-hmm. persons weren't considered. Now, this goes back to the, the discovery mm-hmm. of thalidomide as a potential treatment for morning sickness... And it's Mm -hmm. toxicity on fetal development. As a direct result of that, clinical trial research has been very, very cautious about conducting research in pregnant persons. Yeah. Understandably. But there has to be time when you say, you know what, we have enough data from our clinical trials from patients who weren't pregnant when they were dosed, for example, but then fell pregnant shortly afterwards to demonstrate that the thing is safe to give to a pregnant person. And that's that's usually how you get your initial um, pregnancy data is you're giving your drug to patients and they're taking it. And then two or three or four patients on the study of however many thousands happen to be pregnant and suffer no adverse effects. And you go, oh, well, it's it's fine. But you won't deliberately go out and recruit pregnant people, which means you can't prove statistically significantly that the drug is safe in pregnant people. And, and there is a there is a risk to it and whether people are willing to sign up for research whilst pregnant. Th- these are all valid concerns, absolutely. And you would not do a first-in-human study on a pregnant person. You Like we've talked about with everything else, healthy volunteers first and then you progress slowly through. But somewhere in your research development plan, before it gets to marketing your drug, you should be testing it on pregnant persons, particularly if it's something like a vaccine that is likely to be desired by a pregnant person. You have to show yeah. that it's safe, right? Yeah, so there aren't that many good guidelines on research inclusion across across a whole bunch of different, what's the word, identities or possible factors. Th- things like socioeconomic mm-hmm. status or like digital exclusion mm-hmm. is huge because if you can't go on a website and research what studies are available, if you don't have access to healthcare, if you don't have insurance, to even go to your, your GP, your general practitioner and say, hey... Uh, you know, what other treatment options are available for me, please? You know, if you don't have a doctor that's informed, you may struggle to, to, to participate in research that could be beneficial to you and or humanity in general. Did that it answer did. your question? It did. There's a lot to think about, as always, in questions of inclusion and exclusion. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm reflecting on like how easy it is to imagine people saying like, oh, well, why on earth would it matter socioeconomic status, right? Why would it, if we work so hard to only include people, because it should impact people, whether they're rich or poor, it should impact people the same way. And it's like, there's, I I mean, I have a million responses in my head already, right? Of like, why that wouldn't be the case, right? And why, um, things that we know about health outcomes that are tied to the social determinants of health. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's social yeah. determinants of health, exactly, right? And your diet and yes. your sleep and stress. stress. Big one. And, all and of like these and things. I think Absolutely. that that impulse to say but it shouldn't matter, rich and poor, we all will be impacted by a drug the same way. Um right. You don't and know I that unless you test it. The bias we're trying to 
introduce rules around inclusion and exclusion to try to avoid a researcher or a protocol writer coming in and saying, well, obviously, it's going to be fine if we only have the hours of the clinic during times when someone with a white collar job and a forgiving boss can go, because it doesn't matter if we only get white collar participants, so to speak, right? We only get like people with enough kind of economic security that they can miss a few hours of work without worrying. Anyway. Yeah. Or if you only, like I saw, and I'm sure we've talked about this before previously, maybe, like an Alzheimer's mm-hmm. study that had an upper age limit. <laughs> yeah. What? Why? That's just, this is, a, this is a disease that is known to affect older people. Yeah. Why would you put an upper age limit on it? If it's not safe for them to be in the study, that mm-hmm. will be covered by other criteria about, you yeah. know, their, if their blood levels are a certain thing or if, the, if they can't X, Y or Z, right? The criteria yeah. will be really specific about their safety. But why do you need to put an upper age limit on it? The oh, BMI boy. as well. <laughs> Yeah. For many reasons, in the bin, but excluding oh fat God. people from research is just it's it's wrong and it's gross. And then the fact that like so many drugs, the dose that is yep. given is the dose for a, a like birth slim control. Person. Right, and there's so work. little evidence about whether or not it works in people above a certain BMI, whatever, like in a certain weight or body type. Like, there's about what doses are needed yep. and stuff. And they're like increasingly concerns that like a lot of women who rely on birth control for a variety of reasons, not to get pregnant for is just one of them, right? Are getting yeah, not yeah, enough yeah, dose yeah, yeah. because the research has never in- included, and it has in fact frequently excluded on the basis of weight, which is so disheartening. <laughs> yeah, the um, mm-hmm. emergency yep. contraceptive pills. Yep. Plan B, right? The morning after pill. Doesn't work if you're over a certain weight. The, Just doesn't work. And you Best don't of get luck. taught that. No one tells no, you No that. one tells you it. Until you're a fat person and you, and you take the morning after pill and you go, oh, shoot, I'm pregnant. Yes. Anyway, all very good reasons why research should be inclusive yeah. and it currently isn't. And works are in progress to improve that, but wowie, we are late in the game. And I think this this could be a whole separate conversation. Yeah. I think it should be a whole separate conversation that we should have in 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 great detail. Anywho, so inclusion exclusion criteria determine who who is part of the study, and at the moment, Shocking. not equitable. Yeah. Okay. So we have determined we've got our drug, we've got our indication, diabetes type two, we've got some criteria about what sort of patients we're looking for, our inclusion exclusion. Next, we've already talked about this a little bit. This study is going to be placebo controlled. Okay. So comparing our active investigational drug, wonder drug A, to a sugar pill. This way we can see if there's any difference between the two, right? And any difference will be caused by the activity of our active drug. Acknowledging that the, the placebo effect will be built in. If you gave patients no drug at all, they may they may be at a certain level. If you give them a placebo, they may be 5% better. Cool, great, smashing. If you give them the active drug, they're 50% better. The difference between placebo and active is 45%. Yeah. That's a very rough yes, sketch, illustrates. but hopefully that illustrates yes thank you the the placebo effect in reality now as i said before placebo is not always going to be the right choice if there is all if you've already done your preliminary safety studies which you may have done versus a placebo and you're now looking to see is my drug better than what's already on the market if there is something already on the market if there's nothing then you're going to continue to compare to placebo but if there is an already licensed popular safe product on the market you are likely to wish to compare your new drug to that that is an active comparator okay so we're comparing our new medicine to something existing that does the same job treats the same indication the reason that you might want to use an active comparator is to support your drug being sold 
once it's approved. So in the real world, outside of research, if I'm a patient with type 2 diabetes and I need a treatment, I'm going to be taking the existing available treatments. If if my disease uh, presentation is bad enough that I need treatment, some people are able to manage type 2 diabetes with diet and exercise and, and many other things that aren't drugs. But some people will need to take drugs. And in the case of type 2 diabetes, there are drugs available. In, in some different indications, there are no drugs available. But for, for this indication, there are. So if you are able to prove via a study or series of research studies that your drug is better, safer, whatever, than the existing product, you are basically showing to doctors and patients that when your drug is approved they should switch from what they're currently taking to your drug because it's better, it's safer, fewer side effects. You know what? Instead of having to go into the clinic and have an injection every week, you can take a tablet at Sounds home great. once a week. So that's why you go Makes for an sense. active comparator. Okay. Also, some regulators, like the FDA, for example, encourage the use of active comparators where they yep. exist. Why does Question? the FDA do it? You call that the FDA there. Is it just the FDA yeah. that suggests this? Is it... Yeah. And also, yeah. I guess, you know, it's something that you to track back just a little. And I think this is related. You said like, oh, compare, compare. If there's nothing else available, you compare to placebo. Why wouldn't you compare to nothing? Yep. Maybe that's not related. Ah, OK. So why would you not compare to nothing is because the placebo effect is a real thing. So you don't know oh. if you compare mm-hmm. your... If you compare your active drug to nothing, you don't know mm-hmm. whether any improvement you see in the patient right. is just because okay. they're taking a pill. Also, if you have two patients, me and you say, and I'm taking a pill and you're not, we're going to know which one of us yeah. is taking the drug because you're not mm-hmm. taking anything. So this is going to come back to when we talk about patient bias, bias. In this case too. Exactly. That, that piece is going to be relevant. And masking or blinding mm-hmm. is, I don't know what, whether I'm taking active or placebo or active or investigational drug or I don't know what I'm taking because it all looks the same they will be manufactured to look the same so you and I could both be on the same study you could be taking the active drug and I've got the placebo and we sit there and look at our tablets and we don't know which is which okay what was the first Uh, part yeah the other part so they're not related uh was about why the FDA um (laughs) encourages use of active comparators well and I guess more specifically like I think I understand why the FDA does encourage it do others also encourage it and why wouldn't you do it when possible yeah. Okay. So you you should do it when possible, but sometimes drug companies don't want to because if their drug is not better than the currently existing product, it makes it harder for them to sell it. Ah. Right. So that's that's the capitalistic view. In terms of the FDA, you know, being unique among regulators, I don't know everything that every regulator has ever said, but I do know that a few years ago the FDA said you should use active comparators where they exist. They came out and said it very strongly very obviously and that has stuck in my mind which is not to say that other regulators discourage the use of active comparators but the fda are quite unique in how consultative they are and how proactive they are so the um, racial equality guidelines they published them in 20 it was either 2021 or 2022 and i can't remember which and i do apologize and then in 2023 this year they said they were going to make them into legislation now the mhra are i i know working behind the scenes on some equality guidelines and rules but a year two years behind the fda that's not to say that the mhra are bad but i mean the fda is, is a completely different size to the mhra because america is so much bigger than we are and and it also depends on kind of the culture of different organisations. So the MHRA famously do not provide consultancy advice. So 
you can ask the MHRA a question about, oh, is this in line with GCP or should I do this way? And they'll say, we don't provide consultancy, but they will reject your study if you submit it to them and it doesn't meet their standards. Whereas if you take the same question to the FDA, they are likely to sit down and have a meeting with you and talk you through all of the different options and the pros and cons of everything. They're really, in my experience, they are way more consultative than the, than the MHRA. They will sit down and talk through the options with you, whereas the MHRA stock responses we don't provide consultancy now comparing to an active comparator is a, is a good thing if your drug is better than the active comparator but you don't know that when you start it's a study. good thing period so it's a good thing for the company if it's better than the other one if yeah. it's better yeah exactly and that's and that's the thing is we have to remember whether we like it or not we live in a capitalist yes. society and so the pharma company is always going to have half Absolutely. an hour sales and profits Comparing to an active comparator is going to be better for patients, end of sentence, but it may not be better for the company. And that's why the FDA say mm-hmm. you should do it because they yes. know it's better for patients. I mean, the other the other thing that's, that's relevant is the FDA are such a big part of the global market because America is the most profitable place to sell your drugs in because of your wildly fun healthcare <laughs> setup and the size of your yes. population. Other regulators may not need to Fair say enough. it because the FDA do. Okay, right. Next on our checklist. So we have got already, we've got our wonder drug. We're comparing it to placebo. We've got our indication type 2 diabetes. We've got some inclusion exclusion criteria. Next, we know that we need to separate our patients into two different groups. Those that get the active drug and those that get placebo. Now, the structure of the study, whether the two groups are dosed and running in parallel, so next to each other at the same time, or in what's called a crossover design, depends on our indication. Parallel is the easy one to explain, so I'll do that first. Two groups of people, they get this, the, the drug for the same amount of time and they're running in parallel next to each other and they, they don't touch, right? So I'm taking placebo, you're taking active drug and never the, never the two shall meet. Got it. Two parallel lines. Crossover design is different. It starts in that parallel way and we might take the drug for an amount of time or for a number of events, and I'll loop back around to that in a minute, and then we stop taking that drug. Whether it's active or placebo, we stop. And then we do what's called a washout washout period. period. Good question. A washout period is the period between taking two different drugs where you're taking nothing to allow all of the first drug to get out of your system. So washout time is determined by how fast the drug is metabolized out of your body, right? So the amount of it rolling around. Some drugs are metabolized super fast. And we know this. You'll know the drugs that are metabolized super fast. You don't know that you know, but you do. If it's something like uh, Tylenol, take every four hours. you have to take every mm-hmm. four to six hours. That's because it gets metabolized fast and it's out your body pretty quick. Some less fast, uh, you maybe take it okay. once a day. Okay. So the washout period is the period in between taking two different drugs to allow the first drug to be cleared out of your body so it doesn't confuse or mess up. Got it. The results. Got it. So you have your first dosing period, you wash out, and then you have your second dosing period. And what makes it a crossover design is if you started with the placebo, you then cross over the parallel lines and start taking the active. And the other group that started with the active will cross over and start taking the placebo. This is a great design because it allows you to compare the same patients Mm -hmm. taking two different drugs. So it starts to eliminate some of the other socioeconomic indicators of health right the social factors because you're Mm -hmm. looking at the same patients but it only works if the indication doesn't change over time so a degenerative disease for example no good because it's Mm -hmm. going to change over time 
So your your first drug, whatever that was, whether that was active or placebo or active A, active B, whichever it was, is going to look better than the second one because your disease deteriorated naturally. So you can use a crossover design in things like migraine or acute asthma attack, where each event is separate to previous and subsequent events. So you'll treat the first three asthma attacks with drug A, active or placebo or whatever, and then the next three, after the washout period, you'll treat okay. with the other one. Okay? But that wouldn't work for something like Alzheimer's, right. which because is Because at the point where I started the study, at the point where three months have passed, my disease might look totally different. So we Correct. can't actually determine then how the drug is impacting. You can't yeah, compare. You can't compare. You have to yeah. just keep yeah. someone yeah. on the same Absolutely. track that they're on so that you can see over time how the drug impacts them. Absolutely. Okay. So that's parallel design and crossover design. Do you need more patients in a crossover or in a parallel design than you need in a crossover design to get statistically significant results? (laughs) Oh no. The look on Debbie's face right now. She hates me. (laughs) Statistics is my least favorite part of research and it's absolutely central. But in terms of the statistical weighting for the study, I've been super lucky in my career in that I've worked with biostatisticians who do all of this hard maths Mm -hmm. for me. So I don't know is the honest answer whether you would need more or less patients if you had the same study in parallel design to in crossover. The important thing is that you have enough patients to get that statistically significant yeah, result. No matter. No matter. Yeah, yeah. So when we talked before about Andrew Wakefield's study only having twelve patients in, that's probably not enough patients to get you a statistically significant no. result. You can't see listeners, but Elise is rolling her eyes Listen. so hard. Maybe you can hear it. She's rolling her eyes pretty <laughs> I hard. I took so many statistics classes in college. Um Yes, 12, is, I, I, 12 isn't going to cut it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I worked on an, an orphan drug that was for a population with a lipidema. And there were only 15 or 20 people in the world right. that had it. So in that situation, 12 patients might right. be enough. Yeah, 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 you know? totally. Because that's like, you know, 90% of your population period. <laughs> but yeah. But in a situation where it's millions, yes. 12 no. is not enough. Yes. Granted. Okay. So we talked about parallel and crossover design. Now, there are other options for study design too, but parallel and crossover are the most common, and I don't want to get into the others for fear of melting at least. brain's pretty resilient, brain. but don't. Seems, seems fake. <laughs> uh, okay, right. We mentioned before that we want unbiased or reducing bias as much as possible, right, in our data set. And therefore, if possible, we want the study to be randomized and blinded. I bet I have a good idea, but you tell me what does randomized and blinded mean? Randomized is assigning patients to different treatment groups by the toss of a coin, for example, not Mm -hmm. by human choice. So I'm the doctor and I don't get to choose. Ah, you know what? Elise is my favourite patient. I'm going to give her the active drug. And that Debbie, she's my least favourite patient. She Mm -hmm. can get the placebo. Bias. That's even, that is bias. And even if it's as silly as, oh, I don't like that person or it seems silly, it could affect the results of the study. Okay. In that example as well, if I'm the doctor and I've chosen, I'm going to give Elise my active drug and Debbie my placebo, I know which drug each of my patients is getting which could further introduce bias in that I might look at how Elise's disease is presenting and think, actually, she's doing so much better since I put her on this active drug. That's amazing. Even if objectively, based on lab results or scans or what other measures we have, that's not true. Elise 
Elise's drug, uh, Elise's disease yeah. presentation hasn't changed. So that where you want to make sure that the doctor does not know whether the patients are getting investigational product or placebo or active comparator is called blinding or masking. Yeah. So if the patient doesn't know, but the doctor does, that's a single blind. And if both the patient and the doctor don't know, it's double blind. And ideally you okay. want it to be double blind because that reduces any any input of bias. It's, it's, it's important that patients don't know because they, in any healthcare interaction, right, the patients report how yes. they're feeling. And so they may say, oh, I'm feeling great because I'm having this new wonder drug or I'm feeling garbage because you gave me the placebo. And similarly, the doctor may yeah, analyze I mean, just results it, differently. From like anecdotal experience, right? Like being introduced to a new medication and I take it and then I can't tell immediately whether or not it's working, but I'm inclined to say like, I mean, I think it's having an impact, right? Like there's that feeling like, and that's just like in normal, like my doctor prescribed me this drug right. to help me manage something. Right. And so then it's just like, right. And then I, and I'm inclined to say like, I think it's helping, like I need to give it some time, but I, I, I think I noticed a difference here or there. Um, mm-hmm. And like that may not actually, you know, be true but because i've been given a drug i want to believe it and so i'm more likely to report it absolutely and the reason that we have more than one or two people in a study is because there are so many other things going on in your life so many other variables that could impact how you're feeling in your disease presentation or, or just in general right so you have to have enough people in your study to mitigate to manage to remove all of the noise of all of the other variables like you know what has there been a forest fire near you recently that means that the air pollution's garbage so your asthma's playing up has there been a really stressful situation on the news that means you're not sleeping well have you just got a promotion at work so you're under more pressure are certain vegetables not seasonal so you're not eating the same diet that you were six months ago like all of these variables can affect how you are feeling in yourself and how a disease may be presenting. These variables and about a billion others, right? So you have to have enough people in your study to try and to, to try and make sure that one of those variables changing for one of your patients doesn't derail your entire results because you've only got two or 12 patients in your study. So ideally, you want your study to be randomised, i.e. patients are assigned to whichever treatment group they're assigned to randomly. Usually in these days, it's done by a computer automatically. And you want it to be blinded or masked, i.e. nobody knows who's getting which drug and then no bias can be introduced. Cool. Cool. Continuing through our checklist, number five, the next one. We need to define how long our study is going to run for and what kind of assessments or tests we're going to put our patients through. That, I mentioned already, the schedule of events, that Mm -hmm. table, right? In this case, knowing the standard of care for patients with type 2 diabetes is really necessary. Okay, so the standard of care is how patients are treated outside of a clinical trial. For a broken arm, for example, you might have an x-ray at diagnosis and then an x-ray six or eight weeks later. That's your standard of care. And in the meantime, you're in a plaster that holds your arm in place to allow the bone to heal. A cast. (laughs) Thank you, Elise. Absolutely. So if you only have one one x-ray diagnosis and one x-ray six to eight weeks later, it's not ethical to expect a patient to have weekly x-rays because that's really high radiation exposure. And that's a big burden that's way above the standard of care. Now, here's the fun thing. Standard of care is disease specific and it also varies between countries, which means... if you're running a study internationally, it can be a Write challenge a protocol to kind that of successfully 
what is it called? Calibrates. It can be difficult to write a protocol that calibrates and manages those various different standards of, standards of care. As a, for example, if the standard of care treatment in a country is a drug that you know interacts with your treatment, you may exclude all of those patients, which means actually I'm not going to run my study in that country. Or if, and this, this happens in oncology studies, particularly for, for treating cancer, you will have what's called different lines of treatment. So the first line of treatment and, mm. you, you know, the first line of defense. Yes, right? metaphors. Yes. The first line of treatment will be X drug or radiation or surgery or whatever it may be. And if that works, cool, great. Your cancer is treated, hopefully, fingers crossed, five years disease free, yes. go off into the sunset. If the first line doesn't work, you will progress on mm -hmm. to what's called the second line, which may be more aggressive. It may be longer, harder, different, whatever it may be. It may be different to the first line. If that works, cool, great, right off into the sunset. If that doesn't work, you'll then go on to your third line and so on and so on and so on and so right. on. Right. And the further through the lines you get, you're more likely to get towards the experimental things because we have fewer and fewer drugs available as we go through and, and your cancer is not responding right. to treatment. But what you can sometimes see in oncology trials is if you've had an other experimental drug, for example, or a particular drug earlier in your treatment, first line, second line, third line therapy, you can't be in the current study. And that usually is because how that drug works and how our mm -hmm. drug works is the same. So if it didn't work for you then, it's not going to work for you now. And yeah. that makes kind of sense. But that does mean that if that drug that's excluded from my study is the standard of care second line treatment for patients in X country, that means I'm not going to want to run my study in that country because I'm not going to get any patients. They're all going to be ineligible because they all will routinely yes. have had that drug. Okay, so the standard of care is really important to know and understand so that you know what kind of burden you can put your patients under, what kind of tests they can they have routinely so you can get them to have those tests routinely what kind of things might be a bit of an extra burden to their routine but not so bad and what is really asking too much and is never going to get past an ethics committee okay, okay. another example I, I worked on a Crohn's disease study a Crohn's disease is an in inflammatory bowel disorder that's um really really difficult for yes. patients um to, to live with and previously we didn't have very many good treatments there's a few now that are I think quite effective and this this study that I worked on uh, patients were having annual colonoscopies and in order to have a colonoscopy you have to take a, pr a preparation diet and it's invasive yes. and uncomfortable and such and there was a discussion among the study team could we have six monthly colonoscopies to get more data really looking at the inside of the patients and all of the doctors on the study the investigators who were running the study said absolutely no way it is hard enough for our patients having one colonoscopy a year any more than that and they're going to leave the study they're going to drop out no matter how good your drug is they like going through that experience every yeah. six months is hard and especially in countries where like the standard of care if they weren't on the drug was they'd have a, a colonoscopy every two or three years having it once a year was bad enough any more frequently than that and it's a no makes sense so, okay yes next on the list is the outcome that we're measuring or our end point this is also going to be indication specific right because we're not going to measure blood pressure as an outcome on a Crohn's disease study because blood pressure and Crohn's disease don't have a as far as I know don't have a, a relationship I mean there might be I could be wrong but you're more likely to measure um, like patient reported outcomes how they're feeling you're more likely to measure their frequency of going to the bathroom you're more likely to measure their quality of life and objective outcomes from colonoscopies for example 
So the end point will set how long your study runs for because in certain situations, you may be able to measure some kind of improvement in two months. Whereas for other indications, you might have to wait two years or five years or plus, right? For oncology studies, like five-year disease-free survival is, mm -hmm. is gold standard. But you can measure things this side of that, as in, in less time than that. Mm -hmm. So you can measure one-year disease-free survival, and that could be your end point. And then you keep your study running until five years in what's called long-term follow-up. But your, your end point is after one year. We've talked in the past about surrogate outcomes, yes. right? Which for, for a study could be blood pressure or um, blood sugar levels rather than disease survival after five years. Often that's because like a blood sugar level is quicker and easier to measure, right? We're going to do a blood sample before you start the study as a baseline. We'll do another one after one year rather than yes. having to wait for five years. But the goal of your drug is always disease survival, patient well-being. So surrogate endpoints have their place because they often are a quick and dirty way of measuring what your likely disease survival is, but they're not disease survival. Correlation right. causation, right? Um, patient reported outcomes like quality of life are often also used as secondary endpoints. So how the patient's feeling, right? Has, has this new drug allowed them to go and live their life in a way that is is more rewarding to them or you know what actually all of my results say that i'm feeling great but this side effect means i can't i can't leave the house my skin's turned green so yeah. i can't go out whatever it may yeah. be yeah and i suppose depending you know? on the indication that might be a primary outcome too right like for something like, you know, I see all the commercials on TV and I don't, maybe this is a bad example because I don't live with this condition, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But like for like um, psoriasis and things and like how you can like, oh, control it and keep it from impacting you and how like it reduces discomfort, it reduces, you know, but that's not necessarily survivability. Like we're not expecting someone to die of psoriasis yep. we're expecting mm -hmm. them to feel better and be able to do more things um and so them being able to say like oh yeah i'm out there you know more often or my skin feels great or whatever it is is kind of one of the yep. primary outcomes absolutely and that is why it's so disease specific yeah. it's so indication specific so for something like psoriasis you could have like a measure of uh, recurrence rates so over a year how many times do you have a flare mm -hmm. if you have that kind of psoriasis what percentage of your body is covered if when you do flare mm -hmm. and how you feel about that so it, you can have objective measures and you can also have patient reported outcomes both are valid both are important but you're absolutely right that's a great example because it is so specific to each indication what you measure for something like heart attack or stroke i mean you may measure how the patient feels but the primary thing is did you have a heart yes. attack or a stroke yes or no Last but not least, and we mentioned this way back at the beginning, how much drug the patients are going to get and how, right? So what dose we should give the patients. And we're going to hopefully know how much dose is safe based on our previous research and how much dose is effective. But maybe we're doing a very early phase study that's trying to determine the safe dose, in which case we may have a dose range. So you may have some patients taking one milligram, some patients taking two, some patients taking four, some patients taking eight, some patients taking placebo. And you'll run all those groups in parallel and you'll capture safety data for all of them to work cool. out which is the safe dose. How is the method by which the patients get the drug? So is that a tablet? Is that that intravenous infusion that I talked about? Is it an intramuscular injection? Okay. Is it some other way? It's a surgically implanted device that they get it through surgery. Now, the, the formulation of the, the drug or the device we're going to know, but the formulation may also require altering based on standard of care, what's easy for the patients to take. So if the formulation is not determined by how the patients take the drug, 
something like asthma, most of the asthma treatments are inhalation because that's the quickest, easiest Mm -hmm. way to get a medicine to the organ of the body, the lungs that is affected by it. Similarly, you drink cough syrup if you have a cough. Similarly, uh, you will put lotion on your skin if it's a if it's a dermatological thing. But if it's something else, you may take a tablet or you may have to have an injection or something like this. So sometimes your indication determines what your formulation and method of application of the drug is, but sometimes it doesn't. And then you're going to want to make it easy for the patient, right? So you're not going to give the patient a tablet the size of their house <laughs> to swallow because yes. that's hard. But in some cases, you don't have a choice, right? Some tablets yes. are just, just big. And that will be an inclusion or exclusion criteria for the study. Can the patient swallow the tablet? Because if they can't, I'm sorry, you can't be on the study. Now I'm just thinking about all the like big tablets I've ever had to swallow in my life. I'm like, it's it's such a horrible. Yeah. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Okay, so let's just recap where we've been in terms of our study design. So we started with our hypothesis or an idea. Our new wonder drug A is better than placebo. So straight away, we've got placebo comparator. Our indication is type 2 diabetes. We've got some inclusion or exclusion criteria. Let's say it's a big tablet, right? So our patients have to be able to take a big tablet. They have to have consented to the study. We're we're not having a BMI criteria, but we are having a, is the patient well enough not to be on any medication to manage their disease at the moment? These kind of things. Because we know that they're going to be having a placebo and it's not ethical to take patients off an active drug and give them a placebo. We are doing a parallel study design. So two groups running in parallel. Or if we're doing different dose levels, we may have more than two groups, but at least two groups, active and placebo. We are randomising our study. Our study is double blind. So neither the patient nor the doctor will know what medication they're getting. The study is going to run for two years, for example, because that will statistically give us enough data to assess how the patients are going over time. And my friend, (laughs) the biostatistician, is going to tell me how many patients Mm -hmm. I need to get on the study to get enough data to prove or disprove my hypothesis mm-hmm. that my drug's better than placebo by measuring my defined endpoint. When Any is the questions? test? How many questions are on it? Is it multiple choice? There's no <laughs> test. There's no <laughs> test. Uh, as was uh, uh, in your syllabus. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that was given out mm. at the start mm. of the semester. Oh, yeah, I sh- oh God. It's just flashbacks, a... Debbie. Just read the syllabus. Sorry. Read the I'm syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there is loads more that goes into to building a protocol. You know, like the consultation around standard of care can take a big amount of time and that kind of calibration and management of trying to make sure that it takes into account different countries, healthcare systems, for example. Um, but these kind of seven items that we've gone through, we've got a pretty good idea of the skeleton, the framework of our study to try and test out whether our drug is actually better than our placebo comparator okay. in this case. Okay. And ICHGCP, as I said, does give a structure for when you're writing a protocol. And usually the people who write protocols are experts in writing protocols. So I've worked with medical writers who very often have uh, PhDs and are, are you know, very intelligent and very good at that kind of scientific style of writing. So they can absorb all the information you get, kind of give them in a messy way of like, yeah, these are the visits that I want the patient to do and, the, and these kinds of things. And they, and they build this protocol that is clear step by step instructions with explanations and rationale all the way along. And that protocol will go through a robust review process as well. So medical professionals will review it to make sure that it matches the standard of care. The sponsor, if they didn't write the protocol, they will definitely look it over to make sure that it matches their expectation of testing a study that they're sponsoring, that they're kind of responsible for. 
And then also the protocol will go to the ethics committee and all the regulators, depending on which approvals are required where you are, and be reviewed by them to make sure that it meets their requirements. Because it's such a central document to how the study is conducted, documentation's like super key for clinical research. It's it's not something that you can do without writing stuff down. Every part of the clinical trial process is documented. It's It's written down. There's evidence. There's rationale. Because we need to be as transparent as possible in order to be trustworthy. Makes sense. That's the requirement. Makes sense. Any questions? No, thank Elise? you, Professor. <laughs> Please don't <laughs> call me that. <laughs> it makes me feel wildly underqualified. Someone already has imposter syndrome. It's just, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Not me. Okay, well, that's going to do it for us today. We hoped you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. If you've got any questions that you want Elise to ask me, throw them throw them in there. Please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. And of course, please rate and review every podcaster's <laughs> motto. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page. So it kind of is like a college class, right? Clinical Research 101 mm-hmm. introduction. Mm-hmm. You've to. chosen this. Um, that is... I did, I did this to myself. I have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> so often the way. That is on Instagram at clinical.research.intro. Finally, a big thank you from us to our friend Sam Winnie for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro. Uh, so that's thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise. <laughs>